God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for this time to get together with your people, to study your word, to think your thoughts, to feel what you feel, to think what you think, to, to not just be exposed to your thoughts, but to try to understand how you process, how you get to your conclusions, the rationales that you use, the, the criteria that you judge. The, Lord, if we dare, just the way that you think. Lord, there's so much to learn of you and, and from you. And Lord, we know that we are warped. We, we know we bear your image, but Lord, we know that it's buried and it's, it's under a lot of baggage and, it's, and there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of warpness and a lot of twistedness because of our sin. And Lord, we realize that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. But through your word, we get back to the truth. We get back to what we were made to be. We get back to how life was intended to exist. And we understand and we, and we hear and we learn and we become what we learn. And so, Lord, bless us through your word. Work in our hearts tonight. Lord, we are so excited about your word. We pray that you'd enlighten our understanding tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. April the 10th, 32 A.D. was the most dramatic night in the history of the world. The morning light brought the Sanhedrin's condemnation of Jesus. Pilate's mock trial... Jesus' scourging, and finally, a brutal crucifixion. But the night before began with a festive meal the Jews called the Passover. You remember the meaning of the first Passover. To force Pharaoh's hand, God put out a contract on the firstborn of all Egypt. And God provided a way of escape for those who believed. A slaughtered lamb was eaten that night, and then its blood was smeared on the doorposts of the house. So that when death came knocking, it passed over the house where the blood had been applied. And every year thereafter, Jews all over the world recalled God's salvation with this ceremonial meal. Jesus and his disciples ate such a meal on that famous night. In fact, Jesus made some radical changes to the, to the Seder or the meal that night. He turned the Passover into a self-portrait. He was the lamb who was killed and eaten. The blood of Jesus smeared on the framing of our hearts is what causes death to pass over. Jesus said of the matzah that was eaten at the meal, he said it really pointed to his sacrifice. He says, this is my body. He said the same of the cup of wine. He says, this is my blood of the new covenant. We recall that Passover whenever we as Christians take communion. And the Seder meal, or the Passover, ended with the singing of songs. And the songs sung every Passover are tonight's text. Psalms 113 to 118. The Jews call them the Hallel Psalms. And, and I've got to ask you, wouldn't you have loved to hear Jesus sing these songs? What a thrill it would have been to have heard Jesus sing. You think the American Idol can sing? Can you imagine how beautiful the one true God must have sounded? I'm sure Jesus had some pipes, man. 
You know, they left the upper room singing, yet later that night, their singing turned to sorrow. Temple guards arrested Jesus. His disciples forsook him. Peter denied he knew the Lord three times. His trial, his torture, his execution followed. A night that began in celebration ended in confusion and chaos and disaster. And yet, if the disciples had listened to the psalms they sung that night, it would have shined a light on on what was about to transpire. You see, Hallel means psalm or praise. But these psalms were not just praise, they were prophecy. For the psalms chosen for the Passover were preparation for the trial that awaited Jesus. And many of the lines that we'll read tonight were fulfilled the very next day. Well, Psalm 113 begins. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Notice the emphasis on the name of the Lord. Do you remember the miniseries that was on television? It was actually a novel, Alex Haley's Roots. Remember that? The hero's name was Kunta Kinte. But the white slave owners stripped him of his tribal name, and they called him Toby. And Kunta despised that name. It was an insult to his African heritage. It was an attempt to rob him of his dignity and his glory. He was proud of this African name. Likewise, we should be proud of the name of the Lord Jesus. And I've got to ask you, you, are you ever ashamed to speak his name? Are you ever ashamed when you're out in a public place to say the name Jesus You know, in our culture, you can say, God, all that you want, and you'll never raise an eyebrow, but just say, Jesus. And it's like an air raid siren piercing through the quiet of the night. Everybody turns and listens. I mean, the name God can mean anything, but Jesus is much more exclusive. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 tells us the name Jesus is a powerful name. There we're told, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus. Here Psalm 113 verses 2 and 3 tell us three times to bless and praise His name. Verse 3, from the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. As the earth rotates into the light of the sun, every city and every country should greet the new day with praise and thanksgiving to the name of Jesus. Think of it. On a given Sunday, Jesus is praised in secret gatherings of Chinese Christians, in thatched huts there in India, in the great cathedrals of Europe, in metal buildings in Lilburn, Georgia, by cowboys on the plains in Texas, by surfers on the beach in California, by Eskimos somewhere up in Alaska. As the sun crosses the sky, it's followed by a worldwide wave of praise. The Lord is high above all nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high, yet who humbles Himself? to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. God is higher than the heaven. 
the universe fits between his thumb and his pinky, the span of his hand. He holds the universe. And yet at the same time, he oversees the quantum particles of the subatomic world. He is incredibly high, but he's also very, very nigh. He's higher than the heavens, yet he stoops so low that nothing on the earth occurs without his knowledge. God is infinitely high, but he is intimately nigh. God is both transcendent and imminent. Do you think the disciples really understood the God who created the heavens was sitting them with them at the Passover table singing hymns that night? He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap. You know, ancient cities, they burn their waste in a designated spot outside the city walls. And the poor and the needy, they would gather around this burning trash and burning sewage in order to keep warm. And here God promises to turn the tables. His mercy and His grace takes the homeless man who sleeps over the sidewalk grate and seats him with princes, with the princes of his people. Here we're told that God turns paupers into princes. He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts, lifts the needy out of the ash heap. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Oh, praise the Lord. And think of all the biblical examples of God opening the womb of a woman. Sarah then Rebecca, Hannah, Elizabeth, we could go on and on. God can turn a barren Karen into a fertile myrtle. He grants the barren woman a home. Well, Psalm 114 demonstrates how God engineered nature to bring the Hebrews out of Egypt. He mentions both the parting of the Red Sea and the holding back of the Jordan River. You know, from the 6th century A.D., Onward, the church used this psalm in its ministry to the dying and to the bereaved. Psalm 114 speaks of God's victory over our enemies, and thus it's associated with Easter for that very reason. Verse 1. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, and Israel his dominion. Now, when you purchase a piece of real estate, you do so for one of two reasons. You intend for it to either be your residence or you intend to rent it. It's a residence or it's a rental. The Hebrews were purchased by God from slavery to be His holy residence. Judah was God's sanctuary. It was His divine domicile. You see, God had no intention of renting His people out to foreigners. God didn't purchase Israel to be inhabited by strange thoughts or evil ideas or devilish ambitions. God wanted these people for himself. He wanted to take dominion. I hope you understand. God demands the right to rule what he purchases. God demands the right to boss what he buys. Stands to reason. And this is this true of you and me. You and I, we are no rental. You and I are God's sanctuary. We're His dominion. 
He desires to rule what he's rescued. Here Israel is referred to as his sanctuary, as his residence. You are intended to be a home for the Holy Spirit, a house for God. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're told the sea saw it and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams. The little hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back. You know, when God delivered His people from bondage, the sea folded back. And He cut a walkway through the seabed. When Joshua led Israel into Canaan, God held back. He dammed up the Jordan River and they walked across on dry ground. God controlled nature, manipulated nature in order to deliver His people. O mountains that you skip like rams, O little hills like lambs, tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a fountain of waters. You know, twice while wandering in the wilderness, God brought water from the rock. The first time Moses struck the rock, The second time, he just spoke to the rock and water gushed out. And Jesus is our rock. And on that night, the night that the disciples and Jesus were singing these psalms, the disciples should have known that Jesus was about to be struck. Thankfully, because of his work on the cross, today all we have to do is speak to the rock. And out will flow water, water of life and a river of refreshment into our lives. Now history tells us that the Assyrians, they were masters of propaganda. In fact, Adolf Hitler designed aspects of his propaganda machine by borrowing ideas from the ancient Assyrians. And when the Assyrians camped outside of Jerusalem, They didn't want to waste their time and their resources in a prolonged siege. So King Sennacherib tried to intimidate and threaten the Jews. In fact, he sent spokesmen to bully Judah into surrender. He was going to try to talk them out of a fight and get them to surrender. These Assyrian spokesmen, they blasphemed the God of Judah. They spoke of the supposed superiority of their own gods. They boasted that Jerusalem would fall. And was God scared? (laughs) Absolutely not. We're told that God sent one angel, just one angel. An angel of the Lord shut him up. In one night, the angel of the Lord slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians. The rest got confused and they ran home with their tails tucked between their legs. As usual, God had the last word. Now, there are many who believe that Psalm 115 was probably written by either Hezekiah or by Isaiah in response to the taunts of the Assyrians. Verse 1. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory because of your mercy and because of your truth. We sing a Chris Tomlin song around here, not to us, but to your name, give the glory or be the glory. I like that. Not unto us, but to you, Lord, to your name. 
Verse 2 and 3, why should the Gentiles say, so where is their God? When Moses first approached the Egyptian Pharaoh and told him that God said, let my people go, Yule Brenner scoffed. Exodus chapter 5 verse 2, the Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. He wouldn't obey a God he didn't know. Funny, after a few plagues, the Pharaoh got to know God very, very well. And in Exodus chapter 12, verse 31, he tells Moses, Go, serve the Lord as you have served, said. I've gotten to know the Lord. You go and serve Him. God made Himself known among the heathen. And here the psalmist is asking God to do it again. He's saying, never let them question, where is our God? Let them know, Lord, where our God dwells. Let them know who our God is. Verse 3, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Here is the first rule of theology. God is God. He's not applying for the job. God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. When you're God, you answer to nobody. You need to understand that. You do whatever you like, whenever you like, however you like, to whomever you like, for however long you like. And you don't need my permission, and you don't owe me an explanation. And you don't owe you that either. God is God. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold. The work of men's hands. Now the true God, he, he is this autonomous Lord of heaven and earth. He does whatever He pleases. Yet these idols, they do whatever men want them to do. They're, they're just little puppets of man's invention and man's creation. You know, God created man in His image, but fallen man has created idols in man's image. Vain and prideful men worship gods who look and act like them. Their gods are the work of men's hands. You know, the Greek pantheon of mythological gods and goddesses, they all had supernatural powers, but they had the same moral flaws and weaknesses as human beings. The same was true for the idols of the Canaanites. He describes these idols. He says they have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Here is the insanity of idolatry. You make a God with eyes, but they don't see and ears, but they don't hear, and noses, but they don't smell, and hands, but they can't touch, and feet, but they won't walk. How can my creation end up greater than me? If it's my creation, it has to be less than me. And why would anyone serve a God less than themselves? Always be careful of thinking, if I were God, I would... How often do we do that? Understand, when you do that, this is idolatry. 
you are creating a God who looks like you. This is the sin of idolatry. If I were God, I would, and you extrapolate that on God. You're doing nothing but creating an idol. His thoughts are higher than your thoughts. His ways are beyond your ways. True worship begins with the realization, I am not God. I mean, there is a God, and I am not Him. That's what you need to really nail down in your theology real quick. His ways are not my ways. His ways are higher than my ways. And real worship doesn't make up its own rules. It realizes who God is, and it approaches Him on His own terms. God does as He pleases. You do what God pleases, hopefully, unless you want to get in a lot of trouble with God. Verse 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh my, unlike the false gods who were unable to act, the true God helps those who trust in Him. Those who mock God are serving a mock God. The Lord has been mindful of us, and He will bless us. Never forget that. The Lord has been mindful of us, and He will bless us. I hope you know our God is a blessing God. You know, throughout the history of Israel, whenever God's people would gather to worship, they always heard the same priestly pronouncement. Number 6, verse 22, instructed the priests on what to say over the people. Every time they gathered, they would say, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. God wanted this truth ringing in the ears of His people. The first words out of the priest's mouth, The Lord bless you, our God is a blessing God. And here he adds, he will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. God pours out his blessings regardless of status symbols. Whether you're on the lowest rung of society's social ladder or whether you're on the top of the heap, all that matters to God is whether you fear him or not. Verse 14, May the Lord give you increase more and more, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. Notice the heavens belong to God, but the earth has been given to us. There's a t-shirt that has the sprawling universe whirling through space with an arrow pointing right to a little microscopic dot, and the caption reads, you are here. That's, that's what verse 16 tells us. The heavens belong to God, but this earth, this one planet, has been given to humanity. God gave to us dominion over planet earth. And, and he will one day hold us responsible for what we did with the opportunity. We're told the dead do not praise the Lord 
nor any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. In other, in other words, if death overcame us, it would silence our praise. Apparently here the psalmist believes in the resurrection. For to praise God forevermore requires triumph over death. Death is a shadow we pass through, but we don't abide there. Hopefully we live forever to worship God. Now the author of Psalm 116 is unknown. And yet, this is a very personal psalm. The author refers to himself 37 times in these 16 verses. The psalm begins... I love the Lord because He has heard my voice and my supplications. Because He has inclined His ear to me, therefore I will call upon Him as long as I live. Now you're learning some things about God tonight. Hopefully you know now that God is a blessing God. But now you, you know, read this verse, you know that God is also a hearing God. He's a blessing God and He's a hearing God. When you pray, He hears. To me, this is pretty exciting. It means that when I pray, someone else is on the other end of the line. I'm not just bouncing them off the ceiling, man. When you pray in Jesus' name, God is listening. He is hearing, and He is quick to answer. We're told, the pains of death surround me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O oh Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Imagine Jesus singing these lyrics as he left the upper room and as he walked across Jerusalem to the Garden of Gethsemane. The pains of death surround me. Later that night in great agony, he would pray this same prayer. And here we get a possible glimpse at the aftermath of Jesus' turmoil in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember Jesus was in the garden. He was distressed and he was troubled. He was facing the prospects of his denial and his betrayal and his death. And he agonized that night until his perspiration were like great drops of blood. Yet here is the outcome. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low and He saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul. Now we get troubled sometimes. We get agitated. We get frustrated. We get disturbed. But, but the prayer is, Lord, return me to my rest. Get me back to that place of trust, Lord. That place of abiding in You. Jesus that night was in turmoil. But the outcome was, he returned to his rest, O oh my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Jesus gained a peace that night in the garden that lasted with him, that, uh, that he kept with him through the turmoil of the next day. He says, for you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Jesus began his priestly ordeal with a tremendous trust in God. Though death had him surrounded, though his eyes were flushed with tears, though it felt like his feet were slipping, Jesus was adamant, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. 
He knew that death was ahead for him. But more importantly, Jesus knew that he would be resurrected. God would deliver his soul from death. Verse 10. I believed, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. But thankfully, God is not like all men. God is faithful. He can be trusted. Now, he says, he asks a question. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? In other words, how do you say thanks to God? How would you answer that question? How do you say thanks to God? How do you express your gratitude to God? You know, Calvin Coolidge once said in a speech to America, he said, we have been a most favored people. We ought to be a most thankful people. And if that's true of Americans, that should be even more true of Christians. You know, my mom, oh my, she knew the importance of expressing your gratitude. And whenever we received a gift, she made us sit down. My brother and I made us sit down and write a thank you note. Man, I hated it. I'd rather be outside running or playing or riding a bike or throwing a ball around, you know. To me, it was a waste of time. Besides, usually I'd already told the person I was thankful. Why did I have to sit down and write a thank you note? But as far as my mom was concerned, if you didn't say thanks in a tangible way, you weren't really saying thanks. You had to express it in a tangible way. Here he's asking, God, how, how do you want us to say thanks to you? How can we express to you our thanks in tangible ways? You remember in Luke chapter 17, Jesus entered a certain village and he met ten lepers who cried out for mercy. Jesus healed all ten lepers. But as soon as they were healed, they all ran off to the priest to be pronounced clean and to begin a new life. Only one of the men returned to thank Jesus for the miracle. And Jesus asked, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? And today, millions the world over have been healed by Jesus and saved by Jesus. And yet we can still hear him ask, didn't I heal John and Jim? Didn't I save Bev and Barbara? I mean, didn't I work a miracle there for Andy and Ashley? Where are they now? Are you among the nine? Nowhere to be found? Or are we among the few who take the time to say thanks? I love how William Hislop once put it. He said, to save such a sinner as I, God shall never hear the end of it. I like that. That should be our attitude. Well, how do you say thanks to God? What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? The psalmist suggests three ways to say thanks to God. He says, I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Here they are, three ways. The first way to say thanks to God is to take up the cup of salvation. Through God's grace, our cup is now brimming with blessing. The least we can do is to enjoy it. Put the cup of salvation to your lips and take a deep, long drink. You know, whenever my grandma had a guest over, she would, it didn't matter what time of day it was, 
9 o'clock in the morning, 11 o'clock at night, and she didn't care. Whenever you came to Grandma's house, she would stop whatever she was doing, and she would whip up a scrumptious meal. No cost, no obligation to you. She would just fix you a feast. And if you tried to repay her, she would be insulted. The only way you could say thanks to Grandma was to clean your plate and ask for some more. The greatest insult to her would be for you to sit there and just sort of nibble at the food or ignore the food or, worse, fill up on other junk before you came to her house. Likewise, we'd say thanks to God by enjoying His blessings. Not filling up on the junk of this world, but coming to His table, sitting down at, at His feast and feeding on all of the blessings that He has for us. How do you say thanks to God? You take up the cup of salvation. A second way is to call upon the name of the Lord. You know the best way for you to say thanks to an automobile mechanic who does excellent work? You know, automobile mechanics, they don't really want pick-me-up bouquets or little thank-you notes in the mail or a big macho guy. The best way to say thanks to an automobile mechanic is the next time your car malfunctions, you go right back to him for his help. Here he's saying the way to say thanks to God is to call upon him when you're in trouble. When you have a problem, make God your first resort, not your last retreat. Before you call the friend, before you turn to the church, go to God. Ask him for help. You thank God for past kindnesses by relying on his current kindness in your trouble. And a third way to say thanks to God is to pay your vows in the presence of of all God's people. You know, the psalmist is so thankful to God. He parades his little lamb through the streets of Jerusalem. He walks his sacrifice up to the temple. He wants everybody to know that he's about to praise God. He's about to offer a sacrifice to God. He's not embarrassed by his devotion to God. He wants the world to know of his love for God. The psalmist goes public with his praise. You know, Jesus told us to pray to him in private. He said, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door behind you. But when we praise God, we're supposed to roll the windows down, man. We're supposed to let the world hear. We're supposed to praise Him at school and in the office and at the grocery store and at the ballpark. Wherever we go, we should shout His praise. Praise needs to go public. So let's review. How do you say thanks to God? You drink the cup of salvation. You call on the Lord for help. And you go public with your praise. Well, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Jesus' resurrection transformed death from an enemy into a friend. The grim reaper has become our transport to glory. God's death is no longer a tombstone, not a stepping stone. It's been said what the caterpillar calls the end of life, the master calls the butterfly. That's how we should see death. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. 
Again, think of what these words must have meant coming from the lips of Jesus on that special night. He's about to be nailed to a tree. A public disgrace. He's about to be paraded through the streets, half naked and mocked, and hung from a cross, a disgrace and shame in the eyes of the people. But he's ready. He's ready to pay his vows in the presence of all his people. As we're told in Hebrews 12, verse 2, who for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus was humiliated so that we could save face and be declared righteous. Of the 1,189 chapters in your Bible, Psalm 117 is the middle chapter, and it's the shortest chapter. And, and i got to tell you, Psalm 117 has some very sentimental meaning for It was usually my dad's choice to read to our brother and I when it was his turn to put us into bed on Wednesday nights. You see, Mom would always read us a chapter of the Bible before we went to sleep. But Wednesday night was choir practice. And she always sung in the choir. And so she was at church and it was left up to Dad to tuck us in. But he was tired. It was a long day for him. And, and so every Wednesday night he would come in with his Bible and he would say, Okay, boys, tonight I'm going to read you the shortest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you nations. Praise the mighty people for his merciful kindness and great toward us. And the truth of the Lord endure forever. Praise you, the Lord, tonight, boys. You need to understand. I was 25 years old before I realized the night, boys, was not part of the text. Every Wednesday night, he came in and he read Psalm 117. Shortest chapter in the Bible. But before you laugh too hard at my dad, I'm 51 years old, and I still know this song by heart. And he's responsible for that. And I would only ask the dads here tonight, have you taken the time to teach your child the chapter of the Bible? Is there a chapter of the Bible that your child can quote from heart because of the influence of his dad? Well, my dad didn't do everything wrong. He did a pretty good job on this. Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Now here's a psalm that invites the Gentiles to join in the celebration and worship of God. In fact, in Romans 15, verse 1, Paul quotes Psalm 117, verse 1, as proof of God's love for the Gentiles. Now look how John Phillips puts it. He says, the Jews were given light from God, with the, which the Gentiles never had. But they were never given love from God, which the Gentiles did not have. In other words, God loves the Gentiles just as much as he loves the Jews. Remember John 3.16, God so loved the world. It was always God's desire to reach the Gentiles through the Jews. The psalmist continues, Lord him, all you peoples. The Hebrew word translated Lord means to sing loudly, to praise God with a voice loud enough for everyone to hear. Lord means loud. 